Thank you, Lord. Thank you that though we are dark, you say we are lovely, that you love us. You love us even still. So now, Lord, Holy, Holy Spirit, we ask you, come. Release revelation this morning, I pray. Help me, strengthen me, help me to speak as an oracle. Stand with me, hold my hand. Lord, I thank you for the declaration of your word is warfare and worship. So, Lord, we, we approach your word as the holy thing it is. We approach it with honor and we thank you for it. So now, Lord, I ask, release revelation in this place. Release revelation. In the name of Jesus. Good. Everybody said amen. Okay, turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to continue on our sixth part of our series, The Glory of Marriage, and um, really have been enjoying studying and teaching along these lines. This has been a, an exceptional time, I think, with me and the Lord and then in, in the Scripture, and then I'm getting lots of good feedback from people who are getting touched and challenged by the Word, so that's always good. Today, we're going to uh, continue. We're on uh, the second part of what we started last week, topic being the purposes of marriage. And um, I was going to try to cram them all into one week, but there's just really no way to do that. So we did three last week, and then we'll do three this week. And, uh, and then we'll go a couple more weeks on this, on this series. I think we have a couple more, couple more messages um, that the Lord has at least put on my heart. So, but last week we did the first three, uh, and these are not the exhaustive purposes of marriage. These are as you know as we see them. But there's more. There's got to be more. God's God is infinite. There's clearly more to Him than any one of us could could uh, comprehend. But last week we touched on three, and so those are this. I'm going to give them to you just just as a recap. The first one, purpose for marriage is that marriage is a continuing, uh, continual living testimony of God's plan for humanity in that God wants to be forever united uh, with humanity. Humanity indeed are united at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we talked about that in detail about how if we're not at a wedding, then uh, we're not, it's not over yet. And then our marriages, uh, the actual uh, becoming one together with another person, that is a picture of what Jesus gives us, uh, it's a picture of what we're, I mean, where we're going with Jesus is what I should say. You and I, in Christ, we are going to be married to Jesus, united with deity. It's an incredible mystery that det- it, it really requires, uh, it demands much meditation because that thought we're going to be united forever with God, united with deity. He said we'll sit with him on his throne forever. We're going we're gonna to participate with him in the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to be married. He's betrothed us to him forever. That concept, it is a stunning thought. It needs much consideration. So he gives us the testimony of marriage to declare it all day long every day. The fact that I'm becoming one with my wife, that you and your spouse are becoming one. You're one and becoming one, just like we are with Jesus. We are one with the Lord, and we're becoming one unto that day that we're completely one forever. That's the, that's the revelation marriage gives us. So that's the first purpose for it. Second one is it's a continual declaration of Jesus' emotions towards us. 
And, and that he explains to us that we're to love, uh, in Ephesians 5, we're to love our spouses, the husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And so what does he do? He, he, he captures us, he catches us, because no husband is going to be able to pull that off. No man, no human can pull off loving another human in the, in the perfect, you know, the, the perfect way that God loves us. And so what does he do? He catches us in it. He goes, I want to get you on a journey of learning to love. I want you to find out how much I love you. And then I want you to give that to your spouse. I want you two to flow back and forth in love with it. Flow back and forth in love with one another. And then when you fail, I want you to come back and find out again how much I love you. So that you can continue to love one another as I've loved you. So marriage gives us that continual declaration of his love for us. It's, it's a powerful Powerful declaration. And then thirdly, we talked about how marriage is a mechanism to train us in holiness. It's, a, it's, a, it's the perfect environment to train you in living holy. And, uh, and uh, specifically, learning how to love and uh, learning how to be humble. And, and we said that it's the, it's the perfect environment to live the cross. So it's holiness training by living the cross which equals loving and, and being meek. And, uh, and we talked about that in detail. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and, and spring into the fourth purpose, which it connects to the third one, living the cross, uh, a, a mechanism to train us in holiness by living the cross. So then the fourth one uh, simply said is uh, the purpose of marriage is it's spiritual warfare. Marriage is spiritual warfare. Now, I know that when you use that term, spiritual warfare, a lot of weird images can get in your mind. And um, we've all kind of <laughs> done different things with spiritual warfare, you know. I, uh, there's all sorts of different things. I don't want to make fun of anything. I, we, I probably did them all myself. But uh, spiritual warfare um, is probably a lot less about what we do um, even in prayer meetings, than it is about how we actually live our lives out. And, and that is a, a truth that uh, really needs some, some thought. And so marriage then provides an opportunity for spiritual warfare uh, almost, I, I mean, essentially like no other environment. And here's, here's, here's what it is at, at the core of it. Marriage as, a, as a, uh, a weapon of spiritual warfare, it is a, this is the, the big explanation, and I'm going to spend a few minutes explaining it now, the big, the big phrase. It is a continuous declaration of the wisdom of God to the principalities and powers uh, that, are, that are enthroned in our cities. A, a declaration of the wisdom of God to principalities and powers. Now, how is it such a thing? In Ephesians 3, Paul, he lays out a teaching for us regarding what the cross did and how the cross brought Jew and Gentile together in one body and how that was a mystery that was hidden from ages past. The idea that Jew and Gentile who had been totally separated and really at enmity with one another, how Jew and Gentile through the cross of Christ would become one body in Christ. That's a massive mystery that's been hidden. And Paul says he was given a stewardship to proclaim that mystery, the the. The, the tearing down of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And then he goes on to say that he was, he was given this uh, 
grace to preach for a purpose. And, and there's multiple purposes. He says they're eternal purposes. But let's pick up the narrative of what he's teaching the Ephesians in, in Ephesians 3. Look at, look at verse 8. He says, to me, who am less, the very least of all the saints. I'm going to read the, the New American Standard. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. The unfathomable riches of Christ. I love that phrase. It's just an awesome phrase. And then he goes on, and, and, and verse 9 essentially just says this. He goes, and to make all understand, I'm, I'm going to give you my paraphrase on it because the wording can get a little bit uh, hard to figure, but he basically says in verse 9, he goes, and to make everyone understand how this thing is supposed to be ministered, how this mystery that's been hidden is supposed to be played out. I'm the one that's going to, he goes, part of what I'm supposed to do is to, to explain this to people. And then he goes in verse 10 and he says this. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. He's talking about uh, demon powers. He goes, I'm preaching the unfathomable riches of Christ. I'm telling people how this, this joining of Jew and Gentile in Christ and, and, and the, the message of the cross, how this actually works. And he goes, and I'm doing it for this reason. In verse 10, he gives us the reason. So that... The manifold wisdom of God, you might want to underline that phrase, wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God, might be now made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purposes which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now it's interesting, that phrase, the wisdom of God, Paul spends a lot of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 3, and he lays out to us what is the the, the the most obvious, or I should say the most forthright expression of the wisdom of God. And it's what he says to us in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3 is this. He says, the wisdom of God, it's, it's, his wisdom is foolishness to men, but his, his wisdom is it's far greater than anything that men can offer. In fact, compared to men's, man's wisdom is foolishness compared to God's wisdom. And he explains what the wisdom of God is. He said the wisdom of God is this, that God would do something like the cross. He would do weakness to win. He would, he would be killed so that he could conquer. It's the backward you know, way to think. You think if I'm going to take a place over, I'm going to go in there and bring in armies and I'm just going to just lay, you know, lay waste to the place. But the Lord, what does he do? He comes as a, as a servant and as a, a, a lamb, and in wisdom, he lays his life down unto winning the hearts of men, unto overcoming our hearts. And it's, that's the wisdom of God. So the cross is the wisdom of God. It's foolishness to, to men, and it's foolishness to the rulers of this age. It says uh, in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 3, where he says, he goes, if the rulers of this age, if the, if the, if the, the kings and, and uh, uh, the natural kings and the, and the heavenly princes could understood what, what God was doing through the wisdom of the cross, if they would have understood the wisdom of it, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus because they weren't wanting Jesus to have the power that he had through the resurrection and, and to touch men's hearts. So Paul lays out real clearly in, in chapter 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians what the wisdom of God is. It's, it's, it's the laying down of, of Jesus' life through the cross, the cross, the wisdom of God. And so when he says here, I'm trying to make known the manifold wisdom of God, he goes, I want to I declare this. 
He goes, this thing is now also, it's available to be made known, to be demonstrated is the idea, to principalities and powers, to those ruling authorities over cities and regions. And the way that this thing is demonstrated, it's not demonstrated just by Paul's preaching of it. It's made known, it says, through the church. Everybody say, through the church. The church then has a portion in the declaration of the power of the cross to demon powers and principalities. In fact, that's where they were dethroned. That's where they were, they were overcome by the Lord Jesus. He conquered over them through the cross. And now the church has the, uh, the it's, it's our job. We have the opportunity, but it's our job to walk out this, this uh triumph of the cross and we declare it through our lifestyle and through our lifestyle we make a declaration of the wisdom of the cross to the principalities and powers i'm not trying to get too ethereal with you but this is what paul's talking about that it, that the wisdom of the cross would now be made known through the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places and what it equals is this that men and women human people would voluntarily say yes to Jesus and then choose to live the lifestyle of the cross, choose to lay their lives down for others. That's the demonstration and the declaration of the wisdom of the cross. Because here's the deal. No man, no woman, no human is going to lay their life down just because it's fun. Nobody's going to do that. We're selfish. We're given to sin. Without Jesus, nobody does that. I mean, they might, you know, help a little bit, but ultimately, people are in this thing for themselves because sin makes you selfish. And so Jesus comes, and he demonstrates to us what selfless, sacrificial love looks like. He lays his life down on the cross, and he, and he slays he overcomes principalities and powers through, the, through his death and resurrection, and he, he answers the issue of sin in human hearts. It's amazing to me the number of uh, self-help things there are out there trying to train sinful people to do better. That is like a lost cause. It's just, that's just dumb. If you're sinful, you're going to be really good at one thing, sinning. I, uh, I don't even get offended with sinners. I mean, you know, I, I, it kinda, it'll kind of catch you off guard if you haven't been around sinners a bit. But I, I kind of marvel at the church and our religious kind of prune-faced look when we get around sinners and they're sinning. They were drinking. And they dropped the F-bomb. I go, well, that's what sinners do. They sin. Before I got saved, I was really good at sinning. I'm still really good at it. Except for I've got grace now that I can overcome that unction, the old man trying to get me to sin. I've got the power of the cross. So here's the deal. There's no self-help program. The cross is the answer to the sinful heart. The cross is the answer to overcoming principalities and powers. That's, the cross is the answer. And so when, when people live the cross, you know what they're doing? They're walking out the dominion of Christ that he won on the cross. They're walking it out in their lives. 
They're walking out the power of the kingdom as they live the cross. In other words, as they live selflessly and sacrificially and they lay their lives down, they're walking out the power of the kingdom. You know what that is? That's spiritual warfare. Because where the kingdom has come, the kingdom of the, dar- uh, of the enemy, the kingdom of darkness cannot be. So if you're walking out the cross, you're living the cross, you're living selflessly, you're living sacrificially, you're living by the value system of the kingdom of God, guess what won't be there? The kingdom of darkness. You know what you're doing? You're making a declaration of the wisdom of God to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. And you know what ends up becoming the result of this thing? That if you will live the kingdom, oh, I long for this. If a community of people would actually live the value system of the kingdom of God, if we'd all actually live the cross, you know what we'd get? We'd get a kingdom come reality in this place. And if we would get a kingdom come reality, you know what that's called? That's called an open heaven. And that's called the power of God will be flowing because there won't be a brass heaven because of our sin. You know, heavens are brass because of the sin of the church, not because of the sin of sinners. And so if the church would walk out the values of the kingdom, you're like, is he preaching on marriage or not? Yes, I am. You just wait. If the church would walk out the values of the kingdom, the kingdom would come where, where the culture would reside so the power would reside. And we would, we would not only live, you know, we wouldn't live in these environments where we declare Jesus and we declare the word, but man, it seems like we've got no power. I'll tell you where his culture resides so his glory will reside. And that's what Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 3. He goes, hey, listen. He goes, I don't want you. In verse 13, I love this. It's the apostolic, it's apostolic leadership at its best. He goes, I don't want you to be uh, dis- discouraged by my sufferings on your behalf. He goes, it's your glory. Think about that for a minute. He goes, I don't want you to be discouraged from my suffering for you. It's your glory. That's powerful. That's the demonstration of the cross. That's the declaration of the wisdom of God. When Jesus lays his life down and suffers for us, you know what it is? Our glory. It's unto our redemption. It's unto our glorification. So here's how this works. Marriage. How does this work with marriage? Marriage is spiritual warfare. How? Because you lay your life down for your spouse. You actually take the value system of the kingdom and you actually live it out when the doors of your home shut and you're actually preferring one another and loving one another and serving one another and you're actually giving to one another and you're actually doing it for the other person above your preferences and desires. That's called living the cross. And if you will live the cross, oh, it's a declaration to the enemy that he's got no stronghold, he's got no foothold in your family. Beloved, Do you know why our families are in the shape that they're in and our marriages are in the shape that they're in? Because we won't live the cross. We don't live the cross. The kingdom doesn't come. And therefore, the power of the enemy is able to reside in our families. 
Why do we see fracture in marriage and fracture in the families? Why do we have 50% divorce rate? Why do the, the children in the church look just like the children in the world by and large? Why? Because we don't have the kingdom in our families. But if we would live the cross, if we would walk out the wisdom of God that Jesus, that he, uh, that he demonstrated when he laid his life down, When you walk out that wisdom, Jesus disarmed rulers and authorities and principalities and powers, made a show of them openly by triumphing over them through the cross. You too are in Christ now, and you can walk out that same victory in your home if you will give yourself to selflessness. If you will reject your own preferences and serve the spouse. God, and and, and God's just amazing in wisdom because he will he does marriage and makes this available for us in the church so that we can actually experience the power of the cross the power of the kingdom in our family unto experiencing it in our community Everybody wants revival and wants glory in the church. And Paul even says in Ephesians 3, that's the outcome of this thing, that to him be glory in the church. When the church manifests through it, the the demonstration of God's wisdom, to to Jesus be glory in the church, he said in verse 21 of, of Ephesians 3. But here's the deal. We all want that glory encounter. But I tell you, God wants the glory encounter in your home. He wants the culture of the kingdom of God to come in your home. And while this is a bit of an ethereal kind of subject to explain, it plays out so practically. It pray, plays out so practically. Husband, outserve your wife. Really. We love to point to headship, but sir, in your home, be the head servant. When Jesus came, did he come to serve or be served? He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for all. Is he the head of the church? Now I'm meddling now and you guys aren't amening. Is he the head of the church? Did he come to be served or to serve? What kind of a picture does that give us husbands in our homes? We should be the chief servant just as Christ is the chief servant. The kingdom will come in your family, friend. The kingdom can come in your family. The power of God can be manifest in your family. You can have a holy zone in your home. A kingdom come reality because you're living out the values of the kingdom of God. And I'm I'm just, you know, I, I was a youth pastor for years and one of the saddest things that used to frustrate me so much, one of the saddest things was this, that so often... The church kids were the hardest kids to deal with in the youth group. You know, I would get some guy that came out of drugs and he'd be all messed up. He'd come in and be my most fired up kid in the youth group. But then I'd have the kid that was raised in the church and, and, and their families in church. And so often that kid was the, the biggest pain in the butt in the name of Jesus. I mean, just really was. And I would just go, what is going on here? Well, what was going on was... We, we needed to be living the cross at home so that the kingdom could come in our families so that the kids could be raised up 
truly in the nurture and the admonition of God with fire in their gut ready to serve Jesus full on. But instead, when they, they would hear stuff at church, but when they would go home, it would be a whole different reality. And so here's the deal. Marriage, it's the perfect environment to be the most intense spiritual warrior that you can imagine. Don't imagine that most spiritual warfare takes place in prayer meetings. Though I believe in, I obviously lead 24-7 prayer, really believe in a spiritual warfare that takes place in prayer meetings. But I really believe in this too. Whoever you submit yourself to, his slave you are to serve. And so if you are praying on a prayer mic, but at home you're not serving the Lord, there's a, there's a real you know, uh, hypocrisy going on there. And therein we lack, is why we lack authority so often. Come on, guys. So marriage is spiritual warfare. You're called to demonstrate the wisdom of the cross by laying down your life for your spouse. Outserve, outgive, outbless. And it plays out so practically. You guys, you know, you're sitting in there, you're watching the Falcons get their butts kicked last night. Whew. I know you guys don't watch football, but I do. I had to get my soul under control just watching that. Anyway, how many people actually watch the game? Let me just see. Like, okay, 10% for the record. All right. Here's the deal. They got killed. But while, while you're watching the game and, hey, I want something to drink, instead of, you know, getting your spouse to serve you, why don't you go and get your drink and serve her? It just play it out real simple, like in simple things like that. Be the one that serves first. Be the one that gives first. Be, be the one that offers first. You see what I'm saying? Lay yourself down and just play it out all day long. I, I, if, here's, here's the truth of it. If the... Uh, if the motivator was my wife, though she's so amazing, if she was the motivator to make me serve first, I, I, would, I, still, I still wouldn't do it. But with Jesus as the motivator, with living the cross, I'm called to live the cross as a Christian, with God as the motivator, I will lay myself down willingly for her because he did it for me. That's where the motivation comes from. So often we've got this humanly focused, human serving you know, mentality on marriage. But I tell you, if we have a God-focused mentality on marriage, we will serve and give and lay ourselves down at a much greater rate. So, purpose number four of marriage is a declaration of the wisdom of God in the cross to the principalities and powers that rule over our cities. And what if, what if every marriage, every marriage in the church, what if they were laying their lives down for each other all the time? We'd have glory in our homes. And if we had glory in our homes, you know, we'd have glory in the church. And Ephesians 3.21 would be fulfilled where Paul says, To him let there be glory in the church by Christ Jesus in every generation. This is the purpose of the cross, that there would be glory manifest through the church. Glory gets manifested the church by us living that cross out, living that demonstration of Jesus' sacrifice out. All right, purpose number five. 
Marriage is an opportunity to experience the joy and the pleasure and the beauty of love. See, now we've been through our veggie tray, been through our asparagus, and now I'm going to give you a little dessert. It's an opportunity to experience joy, pleasure, and the beauty of love. There's, there's nothing more beautiful, there's nothing more pleasurable than flowing in love. Experiencing the, the emotion of love upon you and, and then offering and giving love to another. That transaction is the highest beauty and pleasure there is. The, the flowing back and forth in love with another. Chiefly God, but then God builds us to flow back in love and forth, back and forth in love with uh, other people as well. Turn to John 15. Look at this simple verse. So he gives us the opportunity in this age to experience love. The beauty and the joy of love. The pleasures of love. Love will kill you, but love is the highest pleasure. It's good. Love will require self to die. But when you're in that place and and you begin to touch that thing of actually flowing in real love, not love for you, but love for them, and you're flowing in love, there is a bliss and a joy that comes on your soul. Truly, as Jesus said, it is better to give than to receive. And that's how your frame is made, to encounter the bliss of flowing in love because in in that deposit, oh, there is such a return. It's incredible how this thing actually works. And look what he does to us in John 15, verse 12. He says it in John 14 also, but here's, he just says it again, restates it here in verse 12, chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now that works perfectly for the marital context. It, it works for your whole Christianity. But I'm, I'm, a, I'm a keen to right now how oftentimes we'll sign on to things that are good for Christianity and, and our walk with Christ, but we don't apply them to our homes. Apply all the culture and the values of the kingdom. Apply it right to your home. It's amazing how uh, I, I see it in my own life, how I'll be, you know, Mr. Mr. Loving, kind, tender guy, to people I barely even know. Get home, I'm a little sharp, a little short. I'm always short, but I mean short speaking. You know what I mean? I'm a little, little crass. And I'm like, what, what is that? How, how is that okay in my heart that I would have a value over here for being kind and caring and not take that value right back in my home? In fact, this out here, this should just be the carryover of what I do here at home. It should be, I should be like Mr. Caring, loving, giving, serving at home. And then just out here, people just sort of get the leftovers. Now, hopefully the leftovers look good. You see what I'm saying? But it shouldn't be I'm all happy in front of everybody, Mr. Christian. And then at home, I just kind of like, let's let it all hang out. I should love the most with those that I'm in covenant with in my home. So he says, so my point is we take this verse and we don't just apply it to them out there somewhere. We apply it right into our home. This is my commandment. 
How often did Jesus say, I command you to do this and that? Very rarely. Very rarely. He goes, this is my commandment, though. Love. I want you to love. And then he traps us again. That you love one another as I have loved you. He traps us in love. You're caught in love if you're going to do John 15, 12. Because you'll be a failure in love. You will. You'll try to love and then you'll, your flesh will hang out. Or you'll, you know, you'll be doing well for a while and then self will pop up. Love will ultimately bring the death of you. But, but here's the point. He, get, he traps us in it, in it so that we will come back and find out the love that he has for us. He goes, I want you to love your spouse, love your brother as I've loved you. In the same way, in the same manner. So this speaks a few things to me. Number one, it speaks of this. Every person, every person is made to be loved. And not just by God. Every person is made to be loved by others. And every person is made to offer love to others. He couldn't command us to do this if we weren't constructed in the way that we, that we could do it. So he's speaking to us of the construction of how he's made us. He's commanding us to do what he's already made us to do. He's calling us to do what he's created us for is what I'm trying to say. He's calling us to do what he's created us for, which is to love. He's created you to love, not just love God, but to love each other. You are created. I am created to flow back and forth in love with people. Sometimes you get people and they're real, real spiritual and they just love Jesus, but they don't love anybody else. They're not very spiritual if that's how they are. Because here's what he wants. He wants us to fall in love with him so that we can really fall in love with one another. We can flow in love with one another. And so he's telling us of our makeup. You're made to be loved by others and you're made to love others. Now that requires authenticity. And that requires humility. That requires a lot of us. It, it'll bring us to the end of ourself. And it's, I'm telling you, it's the best bliss that you'll ever experience in this life. And so I was looking at this and he says, I want you to love each other as I've loved you. And so then that gives us this amazing opportunity to love as God loves and to be loved by another as God loves us. And I thought of the two chief things that this brought up in my mind. is one, one idea, but it has two, two uh, outgrowths. How, does, and sorry, how do you love me, Jesus? And, and we talked about the cross and laying our lives down. I get that. But how, day to day, how do you love me? And the chief way that I think about how he loves me is in my weakness. He loves me. You know, the, in Song of Solomon, the, the, the phrase is, though I am dark, I am lovely to him. And that's, that's such a key, I mean, crucial feature of love. If you don't comprehend that God loves you in your weakness, he loves you, and just say it another way, loves you in your ugliness, loves you in your inability, then you're not even at point one of love yet. He loves us even in our weakness, even in our immaturity, even in our inability. He's radically in love with us. 
Even when we fail, he loves us. When we perform poorly, he loves us. He's really, really in tune and and knows exactly what you're made of. He's never surprised by you. And he loves you anyway. That is such a powerful truth. That's the truth that gets me up in the morning. Honestly. That God loves me. And he knows me. He knows all my junk. And he loves me still. Not just because he has to, because he really wants to. He wants me. And he loves me in my weakness. That's the one that gets me out of bed. I go, oh, why am I doing this again? Oh, you love me. Even though I'm goofy, you love me. Even though I'm not going to do well sometimes, you love me. Even though I'm going to fail, out and out fail, you love me. My, uh, my son, we kind of had a little snuffy, snuffly kind of coffee, kind of scratchy thing going through our home. And my, my son, my middle son, he's the most dramatic of us all. He, uh, he, got, he, he got it bad. He had a little fever with his. And, and he was just on the couch curled up, and just pitiful, just pitiful, wrapped up in a blanket for a couple days. I don't think he brushed his hair or took a shower for about four or five days. Just a pitiful little pig pen on the couch, just sitting there. And uh, like day two, the end of the day, he just goes, he starts crying. I go, what's the matter, bud? I mean, I, and I'm like, let me get you some water. Let me, what can I do for you? Finally, he just started crying. I said, well, what's going on? He goes, I don't feel good, dad. And I go, I know, I know you don't feel good, buddy. He goes, and I don't have very much love in my heart for anybody right now. <laughs> I, said, I know that feeling. I know that feeling. And I just hugged him. I said, oh, you are so precious. I love you so much. And what I thought about was, if me, little broken dad, can do that with my little son, who's just, you know, he's just in a rough moment, you know, how much more does the Father love me, even in all my weaknesses? I mean, that, that's like my daily prayer life. I don't feel so good, Dad. I don't got very much love. He goes, I love you anyway. He loves us in our weakness. Oh, he loves us in our weakness. Well, beloved... Love one another as I have loved you. This is what I command you. You know what that's calling us to do? We get to love our spouses in their weakness. Oh, amen. Oh, amen. You get the opportunity. Because after a while, you know, all the polish wears off and you go, whoa, we got serious some barnacles. (laughs) We got some stuff. You get to notice all the barnacles just like God does. Actually, he knows more than you do, but you get to see them and you still get to love. And there's something about it when you, when that ignites in your soul that you're loving someone in their weakness and you actually become a healing ointment to their issue. Oh my goodness. You're you're loving them through their stuff. You're loving them in their weakness. You're loving them in their failure. You're loving them in their brokenness. You know what you're doing? You're loving them like God does. And there's something about it in your own heart when you're aware of the failings and the the faults and and the, the, the fissures in the person's soul. There's something about it when you're aware of them, but you'll just love them anyway. 
your soul goes, yes, this is good. So often what we'll do is we'll see their failures and faults and we'll do something good for them trying to get our, our back scratched in return. Don't do that. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is you see them in their brokenness and in their weakness and you love them in spite of them for them. That's loving like God loves. You, you become the one that says, I love you in spite of your ugliness. You know what you become for that person? The safest place on the planet. See, me and the Lord, when I go get with the Lord, I just know he already knows everything. So it's, he, he's my safe place. But he goes, I actually want you to have other people that are your safe places as well, that'll love you and that you'll love just as I have loved you. Can you, can, you, can you envision that, being the other person's safe place, being the other person's place that they can come with all their issues, with all their junk, and they know, they know that even in all their weakness and all their warts, that if they show up on your doorstep, your spouse, that is, if they show up and they say, here I am, honey, that, that you love them, you won't turn them out. When you got that going on, that's when you know you're married. That's when you know you're operating in love. When you see the warts and you don't turn them away. You know what, why we have 50% divorce? Because most of the time, people get shocked by the other person's warts. And they go, I deem you unlovable. And they say stupid stuff like, I fell out of love. Well, love is eternal. You can't fall out of love. Love is a choice. When you say yes to love, you say yes to love forever. When you say I love you, you're pledging love forever. And what you're saying is I'm gonna love you like God loves you in spite of all your weaknesses. And those of you that are engaged or dating or whatever, and maybe you don't think they've got any weaknesses, oh, God bless you. <laughs> Just wait, honey. So we love them like God loves them. We get to be, we get to experience that beauty of giving love while recognizing their weakness and their frailty being the safest place for them to be ugly. You know, I, this is just sort of a common theme. It's not always this way, but in marriages, a lot of times, you know, men feel like they're supposed to fix their wives. They're going to wash her with the water of the word. And that, what they, that in their mind, it means I'm just going to fix all their problems. So they hear the wife, they size it up, and they're going to tell them what to do to fix it. I want to help you out, ladies. Men, a bunch of times your wife's going to have a problem that she won't even have the explanation for. She's going to be feeling a thing. Her mouth's going to be saying a thing. It's not going to really line up. She's not going to know why. She's just feeling it, and it's bad. Don't fix it. Just be a safe place where she can be ugly. That's all she's looking for. The best counsel I've ever given my wife is, it's okay. It's okay. But I don't know what it is. It's okay, honey. She goes, oh, good. It's okay is way better than your five verses, like 90% of the time. That's called love. Be the safest place for her to be ugly. Wives, same thing. Be the safest place for your man to be ugly. 
That's loving like God loves. And then the other thing is this. Actually allowing yourself to be vulnerable enough to have all your warts on display so that somebody has the opportunity to actually see your warts and still love you. There's something about it when you are, when you are wide open and, 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 you, and your spouse knows it, they know your junk, and you're, you're out there and you're in scary land because you know nobody knows you like this and there's your stuff and it's hanging out and you're, you're honest about it, you're being vulnerable, and then to find yourself accepted in your vulnerability. See, that's the opportunity of being loved when you're ugly. We love as he loves, and we receive love from our spouse the way that he loves us. You're made for this. You're made to love people in their weakness, and you're made to be loved in spite of your weakness. Some people are so prideful, they don't really realize it. They don't want to show anybody their flaws. They imagine themselves always to be the hero and always to be the savior. Listen, you got boogers just like everybody else. You've got to get honest and be vulnerable. And allow yourself to be loved. Y'all can laugh at that. People are going, boogers, sorry. There's like eight or ten people just laughing at me while I'm still preaching. You have the opportunity, and you got to allow yourself to do this, to be open enough, to be exposed enough, to be vulnerable enough, to be honest and then to be loved right there in, in the midst of your mess. We're to love like he loves, and we're to be loved like he loves us. Does that make sense? See, marriage is an opportunity to really enjoy the bliss and the beauty of love, really. All right, last one. Purpose for marriage. This is so simple. We get to please God. I know that sounds too simple, but yeah, totally. Marriage pleases God, and in marriage, we get to please God. I want to build a a little bit of a, just a small theological case here. What's interesting to me is in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, Paul calls marriage... And he calls celibacy gifts from God. Both are gifts from God. One, he says, has their gift in this manner, talking about the married, and one has their gift in that manner, talking about the celibate. So both, a married life and a single life, are both equally gifts from God. If you are single, don't despise it. If you are married, don't despise it. Both are gifts from God. That's an important point. Oftentimes I see the single despising their status of life, not recognizing that their gift is their current status and God is trying to minister to them in that place. And so oftentimes they despise their current status and they can't receive anything that the Lord is trying to put in them because they're despising their current gift. So marriage and singleness are both gifts from God. Now, now the Lord says this in Proverbs. He says, he who finds a wife finds a good, good thing. We, we know that part of it. But then the other part, and obtains favor from the Lord. There's an endowment of favor that takes place in marriage. God releases favor. 
That's an interesting thing because when you search that out and you find out what brings favor from the Lord, what specific things cause the Lord to release favor, it's very few. It's just a couple little things and getting married is one of them. I guess the Lord's up there going, boy, you guys are going to need some help. Favor. (laughs) Get married and you get some favor from the Lord. Like a little different, little extra portion of grace. Now here's an interesting thing, because we want to please God. Everybody that's serving Jesus, everybody that, that's born again, that you want to please the Lord, that, that's, that's what's in your heart. How do I please the Lord? And Paul explains that. He says, no longer should we live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. And, and then he says, in light of the judgment seat, in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, in light of the judgment seat, we make it our aim to please God. We don't want to live for ourselves. We want to live for him. We want to please him. Right? This is Christianity. It's how we want to please Jesus. Well, then Paul gives us this other little thing in 1 Corinthians 7, which is really interesting. In verse 32 through 34, he makes this statement. He says this, that if you're single, you can focus on pleasing the Lord. But if you're married, you have to focus on pleasing your spouse. And he actually uses different languages, even more intense. He says you can think about the things of the Lord, and then if you're, ma- if you're married, you have to think about the things of the world. It's like, bummer. But if you look at what Paul is really saying there, he's not saying, man, if you're single, you're better off, and you're going to really please Jesus. And if you're married, then we'll boo on you. Just try to do your best. He's not doing that. What he's saying is this. Both are equally gifts. And there's a way to please God in both. For the single, you focus solely on the Lord. And that's how you please the Lord. If you're, in, if you're married and you want to please the Lord, he goes, I've got, a, I've got a way for you to do it. Please your spouse. You please the Lord by pleasing your spouse. It's the most crazy thing. There's actually other verses that support this. Deuteronomy 24, 5. It's the, it's the newlywed, semi-spiritual people's uh, favorite verse because it's the one where it says, you know, the guy that gets married doesn't have to go to war for a year. So they go, praise God, I'm not doing any work. I'm just gonna stay married. I'm just gonna, we're gonna hunker down for a year. We're gonna have a whole year long honeymoon. Praise the Lord. And I go, well, brother, that's not what that verse means. <laughs> they didn't want the guy to go to war for a year because they didn't want him to die right after he got married. It doesn't mean quit your job and just go live in your basement or your parents, whatever. Anyway, sorry. I just trying, need to get that one out there. But here's what it says in Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, which I think is so cool. I think it's one of the most amazing things about marriage. I, I go, man, Lord, that's what you're saying. If you're saying that through the scripture that I can please my wife and in doing so it will please you. Whoa, that makes, that makes my motivation for pleasing her really big. Deuteronomy 24, 5. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be be free at home for one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Give happiness. You know, I looked that up in other translations. You know what that word happiness? It's happiness. (laughs) And make her happy. That's what he's supposed to do. Well, that's what, that's what you're supposed to do the first year of marriage. And guess what? Every year after, make her happy. 
And that's why Paul said it the way he said it. He goes, listen, if you're single, you get to please the Lord. But if you're married, the way you're going to please the Lord, this is what I'm putting, I'm paraphrasing, but the way you're going to please the Lord is by pleasing your spouse. Give them happiness. I went, wow, Lord, if you're telling me that I've got a direct line of releasing delight in your heart, and it's by doing something as simple as making my wife happy, this is good. Because she likes all my jokes. And I, I mean, this is awesome. I get to please you through this marriage relationship. I used to think that the more spiritual people, they stayed single, and us that were burning with passion had to get married. Because you read 1 Corinthians 7, you just read it at a glance, and you go, wow, it just seems like single people that are serving Jesus are like really spiritual, and all of us married folk are just like, we didn't measure up, we're kind of second class, but that's not at all, not it at all what Paul's trying to teach there. He's, he's teaching how this thing is a gift in both statuses, single or married. That's a gift either way. And you please God direct by serving the Lord when you're single because you don't have a spouse. And you can please the Lord direct when you're married. But you also can please the Lord by making your spouse happy. So cool. It's one of the key things about marriage. One of the key purposes is to please God. Obtain favor from the Lord in it. He likes it so much, he blesses you with another endowment of favor just in marriage where you're trying to please God through it. Oh, beloved, I tell you, if you would approach your spouse with the idea that if I bless you and please you, I'm pleasing God, that will change the motivation you have. It will increase your motivation for blessing and serving and pleasing your spouse. I love that. Give her happiness. I'm like, I, I'm not good at a lot of things, Lord, but I can, I, can do, I can do this. You gave me a really sweet, easygoing wife. I can make her happy. I can do things to make her happy. This is awesome. And I'm going to bless you in it. Oh, this is a good deal. And so then we got some other verses. But the chief one is in Colossians 3, the one that I'm thinking about. Right after Paul's teaching on marriage and family, he, he, he bookends it with the same thought. Colossians 3.23 says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. One of, the, one of the key things I'm after in this teaching on the glory of marriage is that we would live our married lives and live with our spouse. We would live with them as unto God. We would find God in this. We would bless the Lord in this. We would find kingdom power in this. Do you see what I'm saying? We'd find the Lord in loving and serving and blessing our spouse. To me, it just, it, I could never get motivated on the marriage workshops that were just all about us. I, it just, it never moved my heart. I mean, I love my wife, but that never moved me. It always felt a little funny. But then when I realized, hey, wait a minute, there is something different deeply priestly about when I'm loving and blessing my wife. Something deeply spiritual about just making her happy that has a direct impact upon the heart of the Lord. Wait a minute. That changes everything. The purposes for marriage, they're, they're far more than what I've given, but I tell you, they're, 
They tend to not be, the biblical purposes tend to not be our purposes. But I tell you, we'll find the bliss of this thing. We'll find the truth of it, the power of marriage. We'll find it when we consign ourselves to God's purposes and not our own. All right. Amen. Let's go ahead and let's stand. Marriage is spiritual warfare. Marriage is an opportunity to love. Marriage is an opportunity to please the Lord. Purposes for marriage. So simple. Single or married, I just want to invite you. I want to pray for you. I want to ask for that favor to be released on you. You'd say, you know what? I want to, I want to bring pleasure to the Lord in my marriage. I want to see this as an opportunity to please God in the way that I live and love and serve and bless. I want to please God in this. Inviting the Lord right there into the middle of this amazing mystery. And you're loving and worshiping the Lord in your marriage through loving and blessing and serving your spouse. Oh, it's powerful. If you'd say, I, I, I want, I mean, everybody wants that. I'm sure you all want grace in God. But if that's moving your heart, it's touching you, say, you know what, I'd like prayer for that. I'd like that, that favor to be released. I want to please the Lord in my marriage. Single or married, I want to invite you forward. I just want to pray for you. Come Holy Spirit. It's good for single folks too because you know what, you land some of this early. You land the picture of marriage early and then the, the wrong ideas they just they just melt away and we're gonna love Jesus find God in our marriages he said if you find a wife you find a good thing you obtain favor 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 Lord we need favor God there's marriages in all different statuses some that are thriving some that are hurting God, I'm asking right now for that favor. You declared it. You said you would release favor on the one who gets married. Undoubtedly, we need it. Undoubtedly, we need it, God. Release favor. Lord, we want to please you in our marriages. And here we are, stepping before you, saying we want you right there in the center of Connect our hearts to these purposes, God. Bring them before our eyes so that our home.